Each week, the Bible as Literature podcast brings you in-depth discussion of the biblical text in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. If you value this work, please consider donating as little as 25 cents per episode. That's just $1 per month. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi. This is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. In recent weeks, I have stressed the fact that each time you hear Biblical Hebrew or see a Semitic triliteral in the Bible, like it or not, you are hearing or seeing a cross of the many Semitic languages extant at the time of the Bible's writing. Like it or not, each time you hear or see Biblical Hebrew, you are also hearing and seeing Arabic. The word extant is derived from the Latin extens, which means to stand out. In English, it has come to mean still in existence or surviving, like the teaching of scripture under the boot of Hellenism, written in a concoction of the many Semitic languages that the proto-colonial Alexander the Small tried to unhouse in his conquest of everyone. So why all this talk about the Amalekites in biblical literature, when one need only look to human history, to Alexander, to Hiroshima and Nagasaki, or for that matter, current events, to learn about Cain's building project and its legacy of unhousing. The literature, the text, not the history, of scripture is instruction, a cautionary tale, an exhortation. All of us must teach this fact. We must teach it to our fundamentalist Christian friends, those who built a wall in my mom's hometown in Bethlehem of Palestine in defiance of St. Paul who said, for he himself is our peace, who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall. In the parable of scripture, the Amalekites, the enemies of the literary characters, Israel and Judah, are the descendants of the character Esau. As Father Paul explains in his most recent book, Decoding Genesis 1 through 11, early in Genesis, we hear the author using the appellation of Sada, that is the earth as life supporting, and then applying it to the living area of the Amalekites, well before the story of Ephron the Hittite in Genesis chapter 23, and the story of the two brothers Esau and Jacob in Genesis chapters 25 and 27. In other words, early on in Genesis chapter 14, the author magisterially preempts the hearers from concluding that the special story about their ancestor Abram and his Superman feats makes them different from other peoples, especially their sworn adversaries. So why does God command the annihilation of the Amalekites? Amalek is an interesting word in Hebrew. Don't waste time looking it up in a colonial dictionary. 
you will not find anything useful. Melech, in both Arabic and Hebrew, is the triliteral MLK and means king. Did you catch my nonviolent irony? I hope so. In any case, the biblical character Amalek, which begins with the letter Ein, has the same root as Melech. In Arabic, the word for giant is Amlak. So, in the story, these powerful giants are introduced through Samuel as Saul's first test of obedience. There is a parallel tale about Joshua and the Amalekites in Exodus. It's a parable, a mashal, a dark saying, a riddle. It's a metaphoric text contained within an epic storyline, not an historical instruction manual. Pretend you are watching Avengers Endgame. When you leave the movie theater, ask yourself, is the moral of this story an advisory on how to become Thanos and kill half of all inhabitants in the land? This is not a trick question. Who, pray tell, is the king of glory, Saul? Who rescued you from Egypt when you could not fight? Who overcame Agog, king of the giants, a people whose strength was beyond your might? Who saved Joshua and Moses in Exodus? Who is the king of Israel, Saul? Again, this is not a trick question, because you have rejected the word of the Lord, taking the spoils of a victory that you did not win, and claiming things that did not belong to you. The Lord has rejected you from being king. Then Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned. I have indeed transgressed the command of the Lord and your words, because I feared the people and listened to their voice. Of course you did, Saul, because the people demand spoils, security, barriers, and dividing walls in the land. The land, which, like the spoils you took, does not belong to you. It is the property of the Lord. In total view of the biblical epic, long before the story of Ephron the Hittite, let alone Saul or Joshua, Abraham came from the same Sada as the Amalekites, from the same earth as life supporting. We human beings refuse to accept our fate as afar, as people taken from and returning to the dust. This fate, Father Paul explains, will be unexpectedly redressed in Genesis chapter 23 via Ephron, the outsider Hittite, who will prove to be the Lord God's medium for establishing Hebron, the place of brotherhood, the gathering place of Abraham's descendants, which, ironically, will end as the inheritance, not of Joshua, but of Caleb, the outsider dog in the book of Joshua. Caleb, the triliteral KLB, in Arabic, Kelb, the dog, the barbarian, the unclean thing, the standard bearer for brotherhood in the book of life. Let's hope so. 
Richard and I discuss the Gospel of Luke, chapter 5, verses 8 to 9. You're listening to the Bible as literature. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 509 of the Bible as Literature podcast. Last week, we took care to give emphasis not only to the Semitic context, the Semitic backdrop of the Lucan manuscript. And I want to keep emphasizing this, because when we hear the Greek New Testament Hellenistically, which is the folly of theology, when we do this, we then build and manufacture consent around the text that facilitates abuse. And when I say facilitates abuse, I'm not talking about just abuse of the text. I'm talking about the abuse of our fellow human beings, which is something at top of mind right now. Those of you who have been listening to our recent episodes know that the cruelty that's being inflicted on our Jewish and Palestinian brothers and sisters is very painful. It's a wound that we carry. And this abuse, this cruelty, is born out of the things that we build and construct and manufacture. We manufacture in our industrial imperialism. We manufacture things out of our imagination in order to abuse each other. And the textual, the Semitic textual background of the Greek New Testament pulls us back to the ground from which we were taken. And that's how we have to hear the text. At the same time, something, Richard, that you stressed, which is correct. I mean, this is how we were taught all along. When we deal with the Greek in its own right, we have to deal with it functionally in its own right. How does a term function in the New Testament? And that's, on the one hand, as you do with the Semitic roots, you look at how they're used. And then because of the triliteral, it breaks out in a very unique way in Semitic languages. But even in the Greek, how is a Greek term used? And that really controls how you hear a text. It's not simply a matter of what does a word mean, because last week I was I was floored because I fell in the trap, Rich, of saying, oh, this word reminds me of baptism. But it has nothing to do with baptism. The root means to sink or to, you know, go underwater or to be submerged, but its usage by St. Paul, which is very specific and very limited, had a totally different connotation. So you have to look at how words are used. And even when you look at a Semitic root in the Old Testament, you can't say, what does it mean? 
We're not looking at a dictionary to look up a word. We are looking to see how a triliteral is used over and over again. How is it used in the Pentateuch? And does that relate to or cast any light on how it is used? It is usage. We have to drill that word into our head. We're not looking up definitions or meanings. We are analyzing usage. It is word study. Yeah, this is always a, a tricky thing. I've been working on Joel, and I was looking at two annoying verses. One is in chapter one, where it has all these names of all these different locusts. And etymologists have been trying to figure this out. There, some of them are really obscure terms, and you're trying to figure out, like, it's just it's a list of four different kinds of locusts, probably, or four different kinds of insect. And so people say it's a different stage in the life of a locust and this kind of thing. And it's really hard to understand. There's a verse, and it's got four different terms for darkness. There's like dark, and then there's really dark, and then there's cloudy dark, and then why? Why have all these different terms? So I was doing my method, which is I go and I try to understand the etymology to see if there's some kind of nuance here. Because you go in the dictionary, and the first one is darkness. The second one is darkness. Like Koshech, darkness. Arafel, darkness. Elfa, Darkness. It's just like the dictionary doesn't even distinguish them. My professor, Michael Fox, wrote a commentary on the book of Proverbs, and the first, I don't remember, 60 pages or so, was looking at synonyms, all the different terms for wise, all the different terms for fool that are used throughout Proverbs. And if he could find all the different contexts where this type of fool came and this type of wise person came, you know, there are wise people who know how to do something really well. There are wise people who have lived a long time and know different sorts of situations. It's kind of an experience. Then there's foolishness. There's people who go and keep doing foolish things, and there are people who are easily duped. Those are different kinds of fools. But the only way to understand is if you take the Hebrew word, or we're dealing with Luke, so the Greek word first, and then seeing what there is. Now, there is an interesting point to be made. Why are there two words for sinking? You know, the two words that you just brought up, Father. Greek has different words, so we can't just say, oh, they both mean sink, so they're the same thing. No, there was no English. English had not been invented, so the ability to tie these words together with an English word was not possible when this was written. For some reason, Luke picked this word when he could have picked maybe a synonym. Maybe it's a synonym. I'm just making a guess because I haven't done the word study. This is how we have to do study of the Bible to understand what the words are. And delving in deep is important. So what was the solution I came up with the locus is I took an intertextual approach saying, you know what? Every time there's some kind of pestilence, one of these four comes into play. And Joel is talking about how this is the worst possible pestilence anyone has ever heard of and ever will hear of. It's the worst possible thing. So how does he describe that? How does he depict it? By bringing in every kind of locust you find anywhere else in the Bible. So with the darkness, why bring four terms for darkness all into one verse? Like one is enough. No, why four? Well, interestingly, this happens in another book. I won't get into the, the weeds on this. Why? Because this is the day of the Lord. It's the darkest, darkest, darkest day 
And I just said darkest three times. Notice that? Darkest, darkest, darkest day. To emphasize this, when you get into the words and try to understand both the kind of web of meaning they share throughout Scripture, but then when they're brought together in the current instance, you're always having to weigh them in between. What is the usage elsewhere, and what is the usage here? You always have to be aware of those. Now, the great thing is that the old-timers, the people who studied the Bible before computers, they had these appearances of the words at the top of their heads. We actually have, in medieval manuscripts of the Old Testament, you find in the margin, it'll say this word appears in this form five times. That's it. That's all it says. So someone who really knows the Bible will be like, okay, I can remember one, two, three. And they can actually remember where those other ones appear. That was the level that people knew their Bible. I have a PhD, and I don't even come close to that. This is how much dedication it takes to scriptural study to really understand this web that these words create. And that's why recognizing these books that we have that bring these different meanings together, these dictionaries, these concordances, they're so helpful for us because of the wickedness of our times. I have to work a full-time job. I can't just study scripture all the time and memorize how many times this word appears in this many forms. So I'm able to do the study that I'm able to do and have a full-time job, and thank God for that. But this is what Bible study really means. It's really getting into the nitty-gritty, and we're doing our best here in a 20-minute podcast to do what we can to get into the nitty-gritty. This is the fruit that we have offering here to God and to any potential hearers who want to benefit from the work that we've done on these verses and these words. And you know, Rich, it's, it's important— I appreciate your comment, and I want to take the opportunity on the basis of your comment to once again give an exhortation to everyone who hears this podcast. It doesn't matter who you are, especially in the modern age with all of the tools available to everyone. There isn't a person hearing this podcast who can't do a word study. Even if you work a full-time job, you can do a word study, one word study a day, one word study a week. It's just a little bit of time. It's less time spent watching Netflix, less time spent doing something that you personally enjoy. And it's not that much time. It's just a decision to submit. Peace comes through submission. And that word peace is an important word. It's a big word. For a Westerner, you think of the word peace in very self-centered terms. You think about it psychologically. But for someone who is experiencing true suffering, for someone who is displaced, that word peace has a very different meaning, and the word submission has a very different meaning. This is what is meant by duty. We must submit. So to submit once a week, to make the effort to understand 
how a word is used in the original language of Scripture so that you know more for the sake of the common good. I'm going to sound like your sports coach from high school. You can do it. You can do it. Everyone is capable, and it's important and necessary. Faith, which is trust, which is true religion, has nothing to do with what we call religion in the United States. It is the study of the sacred text. Everything else is vanity. Just go back and watch Fiddler on the Roof. What you call community and what you call religion is nonsense. But when Simon Peter saw that, he fell down at Jesus' feet, saying, Go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. A couple of things jump out at me, Rich. Once again, because of the importance of submission, the importance of acquiescing to God, of giving in to God, when I was preparing for today's study, I wanted to take a closer look at this word in Greek, prospipto. It's used in the Septuagint. Interestingly, the Septuagint renders the Hebrew word nafal, which means to collapse or be inferior to. Now, it's used in Genesis chapter 33 with reference to Esau. He put the maids and their children in front, and Leah and her children next, and Rachel and Joseph last. But he himself passed on ahead of them and bowed down to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. Then Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck. Yepol fell on his neck and kissed him, and they wept. So in Genesis, there is this reconciliation, it's falling down, it has this implication of acquiescence. And here in Luke, Peter is saying that he fell down at Jesus' feet, saying, go away from me, I am a sinful man. Now, the other interesting thing, of course, about Nafal in the Semitic is that there is an interesting connotation in Arabic, in classical usage, Nephala means that an individual fell to his share, relating to the spoils of war. Nafila refers to acts of piety or prayers that one gives away in defeat or submission to God. Peter is recognizing his defeat. He is recognizing that in this confrontation, as it were. He himself cannot carry the load. He has no choice but to acquiesce that whatever was gained by going out further according to the command of Jesus, he himself has lost. And he is accepting that he has lost. And he is now falling upon Jesus. And he is falling down. 
and he is accepting that he has, in effect, lost something in what he has gained. And because he has lost, he is now able to see he is in the debt of Jesus, and he is the one who has gone astray. He is, in effect, the one who is wicked, the one who is rasha. He is a wicked person. In classical Arabic, rasa, the one whose limbs have become corrupted. Beka hatta rasat ainuhu. He cried until his eye became sore, meaning his eyelids became corrupt from excessive crying. They became stuck shut. This use of rasa comes from an Islamic text from the 13th century, an Islamic scholar, Ibn Amar, but clearly it sounds a lot like our friend Peter, who has acted wickedly, a wicked person, the amartolos, as it were. The amartolos is important word here, the sinner, and it just reminds me of this verse from Hosea 4-7, Kurubam ken hatuli. As they increased, so they sinned against me. Kvodam bekolon amir. Their glory turned into shame. This is what we have depicted here. Now, maybe it's coincidental, maybe not. It doesn't matter. But there is certainly the link here in the increase that we talked a lot about. Rabab, the word we hear is karubam. The word is rabav. The word is increase. And that's what we were talking about recently. So as Peter increased, he recognized his sinfulness. The danger of this is their glory is turned into shame. Why is this? Because the glory was given to them as a gift from God, and it's been turned into shame because as soon as they claim it as theirs, they own it, they try to protect it, and they truly make it theirs. And Father, you know, I don't like to get into politics, but how often is it precisely when a person, a community, a nation increases in prosperity, becomes a monster, because they are no longer beholden to the one who gave it to them. And this is what Peter, maybe accidentally, recognizes in this moment. And we know later on, he doesn't exactly become a monster in the way that, you know, one could perform truly brutal acts. But we know that this obedient Simon Peter we have here, who very quickly bows to the knees of his master, his Kyrios, he is the one who ultimately betrays Jesus in spite of the bounty that he's given. He turns away from the very one who gave him the biggest load of fish anyone could have ever imagined, simply by speaking a word in the middle of the deep. Jesus speaks a word in the middle of the deep, and Peter and his entire community benefits from the amount of fish. And this is just fish. And Jesus, later on, he laughs. He's like, I'm here to talk more than fish, buddy. (laughs) Well, this isn't about the fish. But just to show you, I'll make sure you have more fish than you ever imagined, and then we'll move on and get to the real work. This bounty that you're experiencing 
is something that is to humble you. And I just recently heard a rabbi who was talking about Judaism. She's not talking theology. She's talking scripture because she says, look, our holy book, Torah, it's five books. And four of the books, the Jews are in exile. Exile is always going to be at the center of Judaism. And as soon as it isn't, what are we? And as soon as Peter's act of humility here loses its meaning and he starts to think he has something to say about the fish and the one who gave them all the fish, Peter is the one who becomes Satan. I mean, come on, folks. Even in English, if you can't figure out that the land belongs to God, I mean, come on, people now. Smile at your brother. For amazement had seized him and all his companions because of the catch of fish which they had taken. Here, again, Rich, is an example where simply on the basis of the Greek text, not the Greek language. This is an important distinction. The Greek text, meaning you have a word, thambos. It's a word that is used sparingly. It appears a couple of times in the New Testament. So you have to ask, why is it used? How is it used? Where is it used? Stress being on the word used. Its usage determines its function. You know, you can say meaning, but you have to use that word meaning in a very specific way. It can't be what you've had to suffer through with your Bible studies, Rich, as you've explained previously, where you sit down and explain the function of a Hebrew root, and somebody looks it up in a dictionary and tries to lecture you about what it means. What are we talking about when we say this is what it means? You have to look at how it's used, and you have to then make a case for how the author is using it in a text specifically, which takes work. So this word thamvos actually is used by the author of the Luke-Acts diptych in a very specific way. It appears, and it corroborates what you're saying about the functionality of Hosea here in Luke, Rich, which I appreciate, which is made functional by the triliteral resh, bet, bet, which we came across when we were discussing this issue of the master, epistatis, here in this parable. So, thambos appears in Acts 3.10 within the context of the following statement that precedes it by Peter in verse 6. But Peter said, I do not possess silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, walk. And seizing him by the right hand, he raised him up, and immediately his feet and his ankles were strengthened. With a leap, he stood up and began to walk, and he entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God, and they were taking note of him as being the one who used to sit at the beautiful gate of the temple and beg alms, and they were filled with wonder. Thamvus. So, you could say, Father Mark, what does this have to do with Luke? Well, 
what it has to do with Luke is that it's the same term being used. And in Luke, Peter is falling as a wicked rasha before the master, before the Lord, Yarab, who is the one who increases and Peter decreases. Because here in Luke, Peter, because he was increasing his riches by growing the church, failed. But something different is happening in Acts, because Peter is saying in Acts, I don't have any wealth to offer you, because the increase is not to me. And because the increase is not to Peter in Acts, he has something to offer the one who is in need. And that one can now walk according to the righteous instruction. He can halakha on the path. So all of this is possible in our hearing if we submit to the text. It's beautiful this word thamvos appears as a noun only in Luke and Acts. The first time we have it is when Peter is amazed at the catch of fish that he has, and the second is when people are amazed, and what does he say? I've got nothing to give you but a word that you may walk. Peter in Luke and Acts, maybe we could say he was redeemed. I don't know if I would go that far, but we can see that he no longer is talking about the fish, but he's talking about the word that he was given. He is no longer a rich fisherman with all the fish he could imagine in the world, but he has a word that will heal somebody. And this is all that he has, but that word is enough for those around him to experience the same thamvos that he experienced when he saw the catch of fish. Look, if you think back, Richard, to our hearing of Matthew, in the structure of the biblical canon, it remains to be seen until the Lord comes. Even for Peter, it remains to be seen, the Lord's judgment. Even for Peter. So we just have to hear the text and wait on the Lord. Thanks very much, Dr. Benton. Thank you, Father. You've just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.